Hey guys, welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Matthew Trexler. I'm the RUF intern here. Uh, I'm filling in for Sammy tonight uh, as we continue our series on the book of Exodus, storied, finding our story in God's story. Uh, we're going to be looking at a very encouraging passage tonight, but also a passage that is incredibly, incredibly weird. It's, it's one of the weirdest passages in Scripture. It's very controversial. Many people have talked about how do we interpret this kind of thing. So it's very loving of Sammy to give me this one to preach. I'm so excited to be able to do that. Um, so kind. I actually told one of the heads of RUF today that I was preaching the sermon. He was like, Sammy made you do that one? That is so cruel. But thank you anyways. Um, anyways, so <clears throat> Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18. And to kind of back up, if you were here last week, we know that Moses has been confronted with God at the burning bush, that God has sent him out on a mission, and that's where we are now. Moses, uh, this is Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord to which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Moses spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Let's pray real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, we again, we just, we pray your blessing upon your word, Father, that will not return into you void. Lord, I pray that you be with the speaker, Father, that I may disappear. Uh, Father, that your Holy Spirit is present here, Lord Jesus. I pray that you help us to understand this passage. I pray that you help us to delight in it. I hope that you pray, pray that you help us to delight in you, that our hearts are left warmed and worshiping you, Father. I pray that for anyone in here tonight, that maybe, Lord, that you will meet them where, the, where they are and you will show them what you are like and that they will rejoice in it and that they will know what you, Lord God, have called them to be. We pray this, Lord. I pray that you give me clarity. And Lord, I pray that I do not speak untruthfully. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a a professor of theology named Russ Moore. And he was a professor at a very prestigious university. And he talked about, one time, he told his story of how he adopted his two sons from Russia. 
and he talked about going to Russia, going to the Soviet Union at the time, and he w- and him and his wife went to the state-run, institutionalized orphanage. And they had to be there. If you've ever done adoptions or you're familiar with how adoptions work, you can't just go and get the child and then just leave. You actually have to be there for several weeks. You have to be with the kids for a day and then leave them and then come back the next day and back and so forth and so forth because the state needs to know, okay, is this person suitable uh, for this child to be with? And he said that they walked into the state-run orphanages, the state-run orphanage, and he said like there was no lights whatsoever in there. Like there were these dirty cribs that were crammed in the corner. No one was taking care of the children. There was like huge cracks in the windows and the cold winter air was blowing through. The children were crying. As he went up to the two boys who would be his sons, he saw that they were laying in their own waist. Like no one was taking care of these children. And it was heartbreaking to him every single night when he had to leave them there in that situation. He said that one night in particular was so difficult for him that as he and his wife left, the two children were screaming, crying for them not to leave. And he had no idea what to say to these two kids. And so he went to one who would be his son and he touched him on the forehead and he said the first thing that came out of his mouth, he said, I will not leave you as an orphan, I will come back for you. He didn't mean to quote Jesus, but it was the first thing that kind of came out of his mouth. Uh, his wife, she took him as she was crying. They went back, and then finally they were able the next day to adopt the children. They picked them up, and they took them out of the orphanage. And as they were bringing them out of the orphanage into the sunlight, the children began to scream in terror. They were screaming in terror. And they didn't know what was wrong, and they, and they, and they immediately figured it out. Oh, these kids have actually never been in the sun before. These kids have never been in the sunlight before. They have no idea what it's like. They've actually never even left that small, dank room. And the children cried all the way on the plane flight, all the way back to the United States. And they cried all that week. And then slowly, months passed, weeks passed, years passed. And finally, the children, you wouldn't even be able to recognize them. They were so Americanized. They were so used to the the ding of the microwave. They were so used to running around with, like, ice cream on their face. They knew that their parents loved them. Uh, you 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 couldn't tell that they were the same person. I tell that story because in this passage tonight, the Lord is coming to His people who are in bondage, who are in slavery, and He is saying, you are no longer slaves. I have called you my son. I have called you my children. And He says, Moses, I want you to go to these people who are in slavery, who are in bondage, and I want you to tell them that they are not slaves anymore. They are my sons and daughters whom I am well pleased with. And I am saving them. Now, this is going to be the main point of the message. It's going to be the main point of my talk tonight. Before we get to that, we kind of have to deal with this very weird situation. I'm going to deal with it briefly, but it's a very weird situation that happens. And it's very confusing. And, I, and I've had to really kind of study it and talk to a lot of people. But it's very difficult. But here's basically the scene. Moses is setting out on his journey. He gets 
blessing from Jethro, right, his father-in-law. He takes Zipporah, his wife, and his children, and they're getting on their donkeys, and they're going to Egypt. He takes up the staff of God. He's ready to go and tell Pharaoh, hey, you let, my pe- you let God's people go. I'm going to work miracles in front of him. I'm going to tell God's people. But Moses at the same time was incredibly afraid. He was doing this reluctantly, but he knew the burden that was on him. And as he's going through the desert, it says here, and the Lord sought him out to kill him. Like, what? Wait, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean you sought to kill him? You just said, hey, go and tell these people, and now the Lord's trying to kill him? What is that about? Why didn't we kill him back at the burning bush if that was the hole we were going for? You could have done it there. You could have consumed him. Why are, what, what, what's going on here? And this is where it gets really confusing. I've always read this passage as the Lord sought to kill Moses. But as I begin to study it and as I begin to talk to other people, I don't think that's actually what this is saying. It's not saying that he sought to kill Moses. It's saying that he sought to kill Moses' firstborn son, Gershom. Now, why is that important? This is why I think it's important. This is why it's so important to understand. If you're going to understand the message that he's about to bring to the slaves, you have to understand this. In that culture, in that world, the firstborn son represented the whole family. He represented everything. So if you have like a little eight-year-old who's like running around his father's estate with like the manicured lawns and the fountains, that eight-year-old could literally look at that and say, all of this is mine. All of this is mine. And he would actually be correct because the firstborn inherited everything. Now, he wasn't going to inherit it until he became a man, until he went through the ceremony in which the father gave him his robe and he became the master of that estate. But the firstborn son inherited everything. He represented everything. So what God is saying also is that when I kill the firstborn son of Pharaoh or I kill the firstborn of the Egyptians, what I'm doing is I'm bringing judgment on that entire house. I'm bringing judgment on all of them. This is why he did this to Abraham. He's like, Abraham, you must sacrifice your son Isaac. Why? Not because I'm a bloodthirsty God who enjoys child sacrifice. No, but because you owe a debt to me. Because you have sinned against me. Because I am a holy God. And you cannot be, I cannot make you a great name, a great nation, and just pass over your sin. I am calling you to account. You have to pay for your sin to me. And that means so, that is so important that it would mean the death of your own firstborn son. And he does that to Abraham. But God is also a God of rich compassion. And he saves Isaac's life. And in this exact same way, he's going to Moses, who he's prepared to go and speak before Pharaoh. He says, Moses, you are a broken and sinful man. You are not better than the ones who you are going to speak to. And I must call you to account. I must call you to account. It is so, your sin is so bad that your son must die. But I am so gracious that what I'm trying to tell you is that I will pass over this and I will put the wrath on my firstborn son. I will put the wrath on my firstborn son so that my people can go free, so that I can preach this message to them. So in some ways, to kind of summarize, God is basically calling Moses' debt, He was stressing to him, you are to represent him to Pharaoh. Um, God is saying to Moses that you'll never be able to lead these people as a priest unless you understand what it is that I'm doing. I'm going to give up my firstborn Jesus in order to redeem my children. But here's where I want to focus on tonight. That's to kind of set the stage. He is telling this to Moses. He is saying this so that Moses can go to these people who are in slavery and he can say this to them. You are no longer slaves. You are a son of God. So this is the first application. This is the first thing I want you guys to see. God does not 
want his people to live as slaves. What does that mean? What does a slave look like? What does a slave look like as a person who is a spiritual slave now in this room? Because many of you in here are living as though you were slaves. What does that mean? Let me give you this picture, this portrait, if you will. Let's say you remember believing the gospel for the first time. You believed in Jesus. You had your sins cleansed. You you felt the immediate freedom and grace of what it meant to have that that sin forgiven, that, that guilt torn away. But as you continue on in the Christian life, you begin to read your Bible, you begin to get involved in the campus ministry, you begin to get involved in your church, you begin to worship, you begin to serve, you do all the right things. You are doing everything right. And very subtly, very subtly, that freedom that you experienced when you first believed was insidiously replaced by the idea that God is happy with you so long as your spiritual life is in order. How you're dealing with that besetting sin that you're dealing with right now. That's what God thinks of you today. That's how God thinks of you. If I told someone the gospel, he's happy with me. But if I didn't pick up my Bible for a week, he's frustrated with me. He's angry with me. Grace has been replaced with a slavish fear. And that grace that is compromised is no longer grace. And you begin to live in fear. You begin to feel as though you are a disappointment to God. That sin that haunts you, that dark motivation that doesn't seem to go away is always attaching itself to you and it drives you deeper into fear and insecurity about your own standing before God. God must be so upset with how I'm living. Surely He doesn't love me. Or He loves me but He's frustrated with me in my lack of spiritual productivity or my lack of spiritual fruit. And this growing fear begins to seep into all of our relationships. We literally can't say no to people because we are people-pleasing maniacs. We have to have people constantly approving of us because secretly we fear that God does not. And so there's an insatiable lust for others to like us. On the outside, you could be the, to- you could be the picture of total success. You are involved in ministry team. You are involved in campus ministry. You are involved in your church. You are involved in Bible study, small groups, life groups, whatever. You are at the right social events. You are doing the right things. You are doing everything right. You are even saying the right things. You are volunteering for missions. You are giving tithing to your church. You're doing all of this, but you're doing it all for yourself. You are doing it to earn your way to God. You are doing it because you live in a deep insecurity and fear that if you were to truly think about it, if you were to truly meditate on it, that fear would bubble up inside of you and you would say, Say he doesn't really love me. And that's what, depend, that's what my relationship depends on. And this is what inevitably happens for anyone who is living that way. You become totally self-centered. You become totally self-centered. You show no real tangible love to anyone. You never ask how you can help others. You only want to be helped yourself. You are angry. You are deeply defensive in general. You can't accept criticism graciously. You are always anxious about your friends, money, or beauty, whatever you have set up as the most important thing. You are critical and fault-finding even with your closest friends. You are hopeless gossip, constantly comparing yourself to others. You are remarkably prayerless. Not for lack of discipline, but for lack of intimacy. You have no gratitude for God because you don't think you need anything. You don't think that you need grace. You haven't received anything yourself. You constantly talk about yourself trying to convince yourself that you are acceptable. You are controlling and manipulative. You have no desire to tell others about Christ because you can't share what you take no joy in. 
is a slave. That is a slave. And many of you in here tonight, if I were to be honest with myself too, we are living as slaves. If you don't know that you are, answer this question. How do you view God? When, you, when I say, what is God like? With what shall you compare Him to? What's the first image that comes into your mind? Many of you, if you were truly honest, you would say, he's kind of like a boss. Or he's kind of like someone who gives me a lot of rules that I have to do. He's a taskmaster. He's some ways, in some ways, he's like uh, the Egyptian slave drivers. He's, wait, he's waiting to lash out at you when, you when you're not doing right. But if you're doing right, fine, I'll leave you alone. But only in so that you are doing exactly what you're supposed to do. That's how you view God. God is a boss. He brings you a job performance thing. Here's your resume. Here's what I want you to do. Go and accomplish it. But like, would a, would a dad do that? A good dad? Can you imagine a dad sticking 600 rules in his refrigerator and saying, all right, all of you are going to obey all 600 of these rules or I will not feed you dinner. If you don't do it, there will be hell to pay. I mean, like, there's a sense of just like, is that, is that a good dad? Like, was that, would that be a good dad? Like, what if your dad, I don't know, what if, what if your dad came to you and was like, okay, I'm going to give you this resume of things I want you to do. I want you to come back in 18 years, and if you have done everything that I've told you to do in this exact way, then maybe I will consider you my son. Like, that, that is, that's busted. I mean, that is sick. That's horrible. But that's how many of us view God. He is a job, he is doing a job performance review on us. Oh, you shared the gospel? Yeah? Well, you also had a lustful thought after that, so it's back to zero for you. I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous, but that's, that's how many of us live. Right? That's how many of us live. Um, have you ever, like, observed kids before? Like, have you ever, like, worked in the nursery or you've worked at your church where they have, like, with a lot of kids or you've, like, you know, you've been on a playground or... <laughs> Not now. <laughs> That'd be really creepy. But at the same time, like, if, you, if you've observed kids, I mean, what are kids like? Like, what is their attitude? Have you met that many stressed out two-year-olds? I mean, seriously, have you met that many stressed out two-year-olds? No, because two-year-olds are too busy running around with their pants off with Kool-Aid all over their face. <laughs> like, seriously, two-year-olds are not worrying about where their next meal is going to come from. If they have good parents, they know they're going to be provided for. They also know that they're helpless, and they also know they're going to be provided for. Do you see what that is? Jesus actually says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be made like a little child. You must see that you are helpless, but that I will also provide for you. Why are you so anxious? Why do we take ourselves so seriously? We take ourselves so seriously. Like, what if you had a relationship with your dad that was like this? What if your dad was like, you know, he's a good dad. He loves to hug his son. He likes to wrestle with his son. He likes to eat fudge sickles with his son. I mean, he just likes to do fun things with his son. And what if the son came to him and said, okay, dad, I'm going to meet with you every six weeks, and that's it. And I'm going to give you a resume, and I'm going to tell you all the things that I've been doing right. I've been cleaning my room, I've been eating my peas, I've been coloring in the lines, and then I want you to accept me as your son, and that'll be fine. Like, the dad's like, okay, well, um, son, I'm, I'm glad that you're doing these things, I'm glad that you're obeying, I'm glad you're cleaning your room, I'm glad you're doing well in kindergarten, I'm glad about that, I really am. But I also kind of want to, I don't know, spend time with you. I actually want to enjoy you, I actually, you're my son, I'm your dad. Like, we're supposed to enjoy each other. And you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever, but you're, you know, I don't want to mess up or anything, so because then, you know, you might not do, you know, you might not be my dad anymore. And like, that would be so terrible. That would be so dumb. That's exactly, exactly how we live the Christian life. 
exactly how we live the Christian life. I do this in ministry. I think about it all the time. I think like, okay, I've got to be, I had these many one-on-ones. I, hey, how, did the, how did the Bible study go? How did the sermon go? How did this go? And I'm thinking, okay, if it went well, God's happy with me. This is, and I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, but I'm subconsciously thinking that. You know, and like if it doesn't go well, then oh, God's you know, just angry. God says, please, maybe it's because like, I, I sinned. You know, I, don't know, I don't know what it is. You just, it's, like, it's not based on grace. It's like based off karma. It's like cause and effect. It's like I do this one thing, something bad will happen to me. I do something good, something good will happen to me. It's like, I, I, that's not the gospel. And many of us just need to chill out for a minute. Seriously, like God is on his throne. He has sent his spirit out. His word will not return to him void. He has ordained all of the events of history. I don't know if you've read the end of the book of Revelation, but Jesus wins. He knows, right? Like he, he's, not, he's not worried. He's literally not concerned. He's not anxious. He began a good work in you. He's going to bring it to completion. He's going to see you. If you are in Christ, you are going to make it to the end. Is that sin that's bothering you? Yes, we need to reap over this. We need to repent over this. But some of you just need to chill out, me included. Chill out. Like, God is not worried. God is not anxious. God knows the ending, right? Like, you are the one who's freaking out. I know, like, that e-contest is really stressful for you right now. But I promise you, in a year or, like, in a week, it really won't be that important to you. Like, just, just take a chill pill for like a second and just breathe for a moment. Your Heavenly Father is in control and He knows what you need. And He's able to provide it. But many of us are suspicious of God. We're suspicious. Even when we hear that, we think, yeah, that's not true. That's like a cartoon view of God. No, no. Like, we, we think, well, okay, God tolerates us. He might be frustrated by us. But he's waiting to punish us. I love this quote. This is from one of my favorite authors, a Puritan theologian named John Owen. I love this. Please listen. This is so good. He says, Christians, Christian believers, people who are in Christ, people who know Christ, who've been saved by grace, Christians tend to look at the Father, listen, with anxious, doubtful thoughts. What fears, what questions are there of his goodwill and kindness? At the best... Many think there is no sweetness at all in him towards us, but what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Jesus. He's gracious in that he died for me, but like he's just dealing with me right now. He's just dealing with my sin. He's just, he's tolerating me. And that's how many of us live, which leads to point two. God wants you to live as a son, not a slave. He wants you to live as a son. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, which is a fantastic book, he asked the question, what is a Christian? How do you define a Christian? What would you say a Christian is? And there's probably all these responses that immediately come into our head. But this is my favorite answer. This is my favorite answer to anyone who's ever answered, asked this question. He says, this, answer can be, this can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as a father. I love that. A Christian is one who has God as a father. The implication of that also is that not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone. Some of them are child, children of wrath. All of us by nature are children of wrath. They're sons of the devil, sons of disobedience. All those who are not in Christ, who are not following the Lamb, are not, are not children of God. That's hard to say, but like... It's true. Like, it's not like, oh, all the people of the world are God's children. No, like, that's not true. The Bible says, no, 
Everyone is a child of wrath by nature. Those who believe in Christ, God adopts. It's the doctrine of adoption. They, uh, he adopts them as his own son. Not everyone is God's child because by nature we are all God-haters. And many of you in here are like, I'm not a God-hater. I don't hate God. I'm doing really good. I'm going to church. I'm doing all these things. Your obedience is actually means that you hate God because you are looking at the Son of God who has died on the cross and you're saying, that is not enough. Like, what you did in the loss of your son is not enough. Thanks, Jesus, but no thanks. I'll live my own way. I'll, make, I'll earn my own way to you. And that is the greatest disservice you could possibly do to God. That only proves that through your obedience, you are actually the greatest God-hater. You are the greatest God-hater. We are all, by nature, children of wrath. And we need Jesus. We need His salvation. But God has stepped in. He has redeemed us. There's a story I heard one time of two boys who were playing on the banks of the Mississippi River. And if you know anything about the Mississippi River, a lot of, you know, travel and commerce kind of comes through there. But a lot of sand and silt gets built up in the river. So they have to have this giant boat that comes through with a plow and plows out the sand and silt and kind of dumps it on the side of the river. So there's these huge sand dunes, these huge like mounds of dirt and silt, and children like love to play on these mounds. There's nothing more fun, but there's also nothing more dangerous. And so in one of them, sometimes a sinkhole can be created, and these two brothers were playing on the mound, and they both began to fall into the mound, and the mound began to fall on top of them. Now, they didn't come home for dinner that night, and so a search party was sent out. And they found, they found the shoulders of the boy. They found his head and his shoulders. He was trapped in the mound. He was completely unconscious. They dug him out, and as he wakes to consciousness, they ask him, Where's your brother? Where's your brother? Where is your brother? And he said, he, I'm actually standing on his shoulders. His brother had saved him. His brother had pushed him up, and the full weight of it had fallen on his older brother. Do you see that's actually what the gospel says to us? The gospel actually says that our elder brother, Jesus Christ, has come down, and your sin, your, the weight of your sin crushed him. Like, it literally crushed him, so that you might be saved from the condemnation that you deserve. That's what Jesus has done for you. That's what he's done for us. He, we, had to, he, we were so bad, he had to die for us. We were so loved, he was glad to die for us. God has redeemed us. He's redeemed us, but he doesn't just stop there. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes, we talk all the time about, yes, God has redeemed us. God has paid for us by his blood. Yes, he has done that, and that is good news. That is actually sufficient good news. I could end the sermon right there, and the band could come back up, and we could sing about how Jesus has saved us from our sin, how he has redeemed us, how he has justified us, how he has taken our record away, and he has given us his perfect righteousness. Like, I can rejoice in that. Like, Jesus is my righteousness. Have you ever thought about that for a little bit? Like, where is your righteousness at? Where is your righteousness? Is it in your prayers? Is it in your repentance? Is it in your feelings about God? Is it in your church attendance? Is it in how you're doing with your sin right now? No, it's not in you at all. You want to know where your righteousness is if you're in Christ? Your righteousness is at the right hand of the Father. That's where your righteousness is. It has nothing to do with you at all. It's not even near you. It is 
Him. He is your righteousness. And as long as He sits on that throne, if you are in Him, you are perfectly righteous, declared just. Like, that is what the gospel says, but it doesn't stop there. That is good news, but it's not the only news. He says, not only are you declared righteous, forgiven of your sin, but I actually adopt you as my son. I'm not just going to deal with you as a judge who says, okay, you're righteous, now move on. No, you are righteous, now come into my family. You actually get the same benefits as the son of God, Jesus Like, you get the same benefits as he does. He's your elder brother, is what this Bible says. You are not a slave. You are his son. Think of it this way. This is a poor illustration, but I'm going to try it anyways. Pretend, okay, we'll go back. um, This is not a political illustration, but go with it anyways. Let's say we'll go back to the election. Um, Let's say that uh, you campaigned against Barack Obama. Maybe some of you did. Probably, you, you, probably some of you did. And so you... <laughs> I didn't, but I'm sure you did. Whatever. No political statements. Whatever. Some of you probably campaigned against him, right? All this kind of idea. You, so let's say, let's pretend, okay, I'm going to be so hardcore on the other side of whatever Obama is. I'm so heavy on this. I'm going to campaign, campaign completely against him. I'm going to, like, blog against him. I'm going to, like, go and, like, pull up signs against him. Talk about how he's, like, you know, Kenyan socialist overlord or whatever. Whatever. Whatever you guys want to make up, whatever. You know, it's just like we'll do all this stuff, uncomfortable laughter. Um, we'll do all this stuff and you just campaign against him, right? And then he wins. And you're defeated, right? Your side lost. Now what if he came to you and said, Okay, let's say for the sake of the illustration, you have no parents. And so he says, You know what? I know you campaigned against me, I know you hated me, I know you don't love me, but I want you to share my victory. I want you to be a part of my family. I'm going to adopt you. I want you sitting there next to me during the inaugural parade. I want you sitting there next to me during the inauguration. I want you to live in the White House with my family. You know, the the staff aides and those people, if they interrupted a NATO meeting or they came into the Oval Office, they would be fired. You are free to do that. You are free to come in at any moment because you are now my son or you are my daughter. I want you to enjoy what I have. You campaigned against him, you hated him, he won, and then you get to share in the victory with him. You get all the benefits of it. It's a poor illustration, it breaks down on many levels, but we hated God. God came to us, he was victorious over sin and death, and he says, now I am victorious over all things, I inherit all heavens and all earth, and I'm actually inviting you to be a part of my family now. You are part of my family and you will get to share in as if you had done all of those things yourself. That is what we, that is the doctrine, that is adoption and justification, and it's beautiful. That is what we believe. But it's possible to know that you are justified, but not experientially know that his, the Father's affection and generosity and closeness to you. I'll, I'm coming to a close, but do you want to know what the greatest unkindness to God is? Do you want to know what's the greatest unkindness and burden that you can lay on your Father? This is a good question. What is the greatest unkindness and burden that you can lay on your father? John Owen answered it this way, not to believe that he loves you. The greatest burden that you can lay on your father is to believe that he doesn't love you. Why is that the greatest burden and unkindness to him? Because he sent his own son for you. 
Like his son died for you. The son whom he loved, whom he created the world with, who has never disobeyed him, who was his beautiful son. He put him to death for you. He said, I tortured my son for you. I poured my wrath on him for you. So that you may go free. So that you are no longer a slave. So that you are in my family and you share in my victory. What more can I say to you? What more can I do that I have not already done? This is everything. I have given you everything. I have given you my own son. How do you not know that I love you? Cease this unkindness to me. Uh, there was a doubting woman who struggled with this who went to my favorite, one of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, um, and she said, I, I do love God, but I really do not believe that He loves me. I, I, I feebly love Him, but I really don't believe that He loves me. And Spurgeon said, woman, this is something I have never struggled with and something I will never struggle with. And I, after I tell you this, you shall, I hope, never struggle with it again either. I love what he tells her. He says, love to God will never get to God without ever having been planted there by God. It's a fruit and not a root of God's love. So you may conclude that if you love God, it is because He most certainly loves you. Just let that wash over you for a minute. If you love God, it is because He has planted that love in your heart. If you are sitting here tonight and saying, Oh, if only I could know a God who is like this. If only I could have this sacrifice on my behalf. If only I could enter into fellowship with this God. If only I could love this God. Guess what? You can. And if you love God, it is because He has first loved you. He has given you this desire. And God is making eye contact with you and you and you and you. And He's saying, you are no longer a slave. You are my son. You are my daughter. So remember that as you wake up tomorrow morning, as you get in the car, as you look in the rearview mirror, say to yourself, I am a child of God bought by the blood of Jesus Christ who who loved me and gave Himself for me. Say, I am a child of God as you walk to class, as you eat, as you hang out with your friends, as you go for a run, as you study, as you put your head down on your pillow. I am a child of God, dearly loved. And I end with this. As we went back to the beginning, we said, you know, like a son inherits everything. A son inherits everything. If a father did not have a son, he would adopt a son and he would give him everything. Jesus, I mean, the Father has a son in Jesus. The Father has a son in which He's going to give him all the inheritance, in which He's going to give him the whole estate, the heavens and earth. He doesn't need to adopt anyone. And out of His beautiful, majestic, glorifying, just all, just mind-blowing love, He decided, you know what, I'm going to take these people who have hated me, who have lived as slaves who have rebelled against me, and I will make them my children. I will make them my own sons and daughters. I will treat them as though they were Christ. You're not just justified. You're adopted. And you're not just a son. You're an heir. You're an heir of all things. All the things of heaven and earth actually belong to you because you possess the possessor of all things. He has given it to you. You have all the benefits of what it would be like to be in Christ because you are in Christ. Just meditate on that for a minute. Just think about that. 
How great, how deep his love for us. Great, greater, greatest. Sinclair Ferguson said that the Christian life is wonder upon wonder and every wonder true. Discovering wonder upon wonder and every wonder true. It's so good to be a Christian. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this idea of this doctrine of you adopting us as your children and loving us. Lord, we thank you for saving us and bringing us into your household. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who is in rebellion against you and does not love you, Lord, I pray that they see their sin and they go to you and that you are a Savior who is willing and able to save them, to cleanse them of all unrighteousness, to cleanse them of all sin, to cleanse them of all self-righteousness, to cleanse them of their obedience and their disobedience for things done against you and things done for themselves. Father, I pray, please, forgive all of those sins, Lord Jesus, and welcome many into your fold. And may we rejoice with you in so great a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. God of my life, to Thee I call, afflicted at Thy feet I fall. When the great water floods prevail, leave not my trembling heart to fail. For though I am despised for God, yet God my God forgets me not, and He is safe and must succeed for the Lord is sure to please.